Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. My guest today is Al Mikhail, and he has written several books on the Ottoman Empire, including Animals in the Ottoman Empire, and his most recent book, God's Shadow, about Sultan Salim the Grim, which we are going to talk about today. And what inspired you to start studying the Ottoman Empire? I got interested um, in the Ottoman Empire because uh, in the most broadest sense, I was interested in the history of the Middle East um, in what we call the early modern period. So roughly 1500 uh, to 1800. This is a period uh, that's crucial for the formation of what will come later, obviously, the modern Middle East. Um, And in general was a period, I I don't think this is... um, uh, still the case, but it, but but you know, over the past fifty years, was a period that wasn't as heavily studied as, say, the nineteenth century. Um, so I was curious um, as to how we sort of got to our current moment. Yeah. Um, and if you're interested in that period and um, um, that place, the Ottoman Empire is obviously crucial since that was the major uh, political force um, in the Middle East um, over the course of these centuries. Um, and it also struck me as I you know, kept reading and reading over the years uh, that the Ottomans were uh, crucial to uh, not just the Middle East, but to, to uh, the world. Um, in these centuries, um, between 1500 and 1800 again. And so uh, in my previous work, I was interested in the impacts of the Ottoman Empire um, in Egypt, for example, and in other places in the Middle East. And in this book, God's Shadow, I really um, took my charge to be understanding part of the impact of the Ottoman Empire on global history. Um, in, in, a, in a circumscribed period uh, at the turn of the 16th century. Um, in the first part of the book, you've started to talking about the Ottoman influence in Europe, and it is uh, you're talking about how the Ottomans inspired the... And it's pretty brutal how the Portuguese found the Americas, and it's you explained it's pretty, it sounds pretty brutal when they, when they seem to be... They looked at the new Native Americans as Muslims themselves. Can you talk a little bit about how the Ottomans influenced the new journey to Americas? Right. So, so the period of, of study in the book is really uh, the 50 years uh, of the life of the main protagonist of the book, Sultan Selim. He lives from 1470 to 1520. So if we think about some of the major world events in that period, obviously 1492 looms very large in that story. And 1492 in the book, um, and maybe we'll get into this, has multiple meanings, right? It's not just 
um, the European voyages across the Atlantic. It's also the expulsion of the Jews um, from Spain um, and the, uh, the uh, reconquista of the Iberian Peninsula. But to, to answer your question, um, I, I was interested in how the Ottoman-Spanish rivalry uh, was a piece of the Atlantic voyages. So how can we think about that? Um, if we take the, the major figure that is usually associated with the voyages, Columbus, um, we can narrate some of this history. So Columbus is born in 1451, uh, just two years before the Ottomans seized Constantinople from the Byzantine Empire in 1453. For Columbus and for that generation of Europeans, that conquest by the Ottomans um, in 1453 was a major geopolitical event, a major uh, uh, religious event in their minds, um, eschatological event, um, and a major economic event. Um, and they saw it as, uh, as one of the, the popes famously described it as plucking out one of the eyes of Christianity, the Eastern kingdom, the Eastern capital of, of Christianity. Um, so the Ottomans, uh, after 1453, even more so than they were before, are seen as an encroaching force on the European continent. Uh, that ramps up over the second half of the 15th century as the Ottomans push further west in the Atlantic Ocean. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, in the Mediterranean, not in the Atlantic, in the Mediterranean, um, uh, across North Africa, and then into some of the islands um, into the Mediterranean. Uh, butting up against Italian, um, uh, Spanish, Portuguese influence um, in the sea. Um, and for uh, someone like um, Isabella in, in Spain, this idea of an encroaching Islam coming from the East is, is very alive in her mind, especially as there are Muslims in um, Iberia um, itself. So for someone like Columbus, who was born in Genoa, in 1451, uh, this is a place in which crusaders would have left to fight against various um, Muslim polities um, in the East to try to, as the Christians would say, reconquer uh, Jerusalem. Uh, this is a place, uh, uh, Genoa, that um, suffered um, economically from the Ottoman conquest in the Black Sea and in the Eastern Mediterranean, cutting off some vital mercantile uh, ports that people in Genoa and other places in Europe had made lots of money in um, over the previous over the previous centuries. So this is a major event in in the lives of of these people. If if we think in a different way about Columbus, we know that um, as a young man he read uh, works by people like Marco Polo um, and other works that described the East in in usually very fantastical ways. So if we take Marco Polo. Marco Polo described a grand con of the East. Uh, this is um, um, someone who was vaguely uh, in, in China, as Marco Polo described it, who had some interest in Christianity, um, who wasn't yet a Christian, but might convert to Christianity and therefore bring all of his subjects to uh, Christianity surrounding Muslims in the Middle East that would allow um, European Christians and then these Christians in the East to, to, to crush Islam in the middle, reclaim Jerusalem and allow, you know, Christ to march upon the earth. Um, 
Um, Columbus, um, in his teenage years, uh, took to uh, various uh, voyages across uh, the Mediterranean Sea, some of which uh, brought him in contact with the Ottomans um, in the Aegean and uh, with um, a Muslim kingdom in North Africa, in Tunis. And there he was able, able to, to, to sort of put some meat on the, on the bones of this uh, fictional um, understanding of Islam that he had gained as a child. All of this reinforced this idea that is, Islam was this encroaching powerful force. Um, so if we think of these, uh, of these multiple levels in which, you know, in the case of Columbus, um, um, j- just to use him as, as a kind of archetype of uh, the European imagination in this period, Islam was a foreboding political, religious, and economic force. To overcome it, Europeans needed to find ways around it, right? So finding an alternative route to trade with Asia because um, um, Muslims were in uh, the middle, right? In, in yeah. the Middle East, um, uh, um, um, blocking Europeans from, from reaching places like India and China. Um, that, that, that there was a need to circumvent uh, Muslim power in the middle. Um, and there was an also uh, a kind of deeper theological um, uh, motivation for someone like Columbus. He really saw um, these efforts as one of crusade against um, um, Muslim kingdoms. And you see this in the language that he used, in the way that he, he, he justifies um, his, his voyages to um, various potential patrons in the way that as he's sailing along the West African coast with a group of Portuguese um, sailors, they talk about the presence of Islam in West Africa. This language of crusade really saturates a lot of of, of Christian writing about others, not just Muslims, but others um, in the second half of the 15th century. And as as you suggested, this language of crusade against Islam and, and other non-Christians um, goes with uh, the conquistadors when they arrive in, um, you know, what, is, what we today call the Caribbean. Um, and there they use a language of crusade and specifically a language of Islam to describe um, um, native peoples that they encounter in the Caribbean. So for example, Columbus describes Taino women as um, somehow uh, being akin to Moorish women, Muslim women. Um, he describes the weapons that Taino soldiers use as akin to uh, the kinds of swords that Muslim soldiers in Spain um, used in their battles. Mm-hmm. Uh, a few decades later, Cortez in, in Mexico um, uses the language of Islam to uh, describe uh, 400 mosques in um, in Mexico. Of course, there were no mosques. These are most likely Aztec structures, um, yes. um, Aztec temples that he's describing. But, but the fact that he uses this language of Islam is, is very important. Um, he describes Montezuma, the great Aztec leader, as a sultan. And there are many other examples of this. So I was interested in this, this kind of long narrative of how an encounter in the old world between um, Islam and Christendom impacts, affects, shapes um, in, in real ways, the very fact that um, an alternative route to Asia is being sought by Europeans in the first place, and then how they come to understand, filter um, this new place that some of them don't think is new. Some of them think they're in Asia, but but others think they're in a yeah, new place. Yeah, you, men- you mentioned that Columbus never got to find out that there was actually new land, that he, t- he thought it was India until he died, right? 
That's right. Until he dies in 1506, um, um, he thinks that he's reached Asia. He just doesn't know where in Asia yet he, he's, he's, uh, he's landed. But there are others during Columbus's lifetime, and then, of course, after, um, who, who, who describe this as, as not being Asia, as being a, a completely new um, um, territory that, they, that they've discovered. Um, um, yeah. Go ahead. No, I, I actually wanted to drop back a little bit because in the book as well, you mentioned that they're pretty close to mutiny, that the crew wanted to turn back and turn on Columbus. How, how close were they to not finding this, this new land? Well, I mean, you know, the, the, there are, you know, any, any number of ways in which this voyage could have been disastrous. Um, you know, they, they for, for example, they sail during prime hurricane season mm-hmm. <laughs> across the Atlantic, a hurricane could have downed their ship very easily. They could have been blown back. They could have gotten lost. Um, there could have been disease on any number of things could have, could have, um, you, you, you know, stopped this from being any kind of, of, of landfall. Um, you know, they were lucky in, 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 in many ways. And how, well, what do you, how do you treat, uh, because you mentioned a lot of, again, I would say that they do talk a lot about them being Islam and that they are Muslims and not, not, not Native Americans, that they actually come to a new Islamic kingdom. But of course, this is far from the, from what it really was, but uh, could you elaborate a little bit? Not just, you talked a little bit about this, but elaborate more if you could. Sure. I mean, this is something that um, continues even beyond this period, but just to stick close, close to the period of Columbus and Cortez, you know, the first few decades, um, there is, a, as I was describing before, a use of the language of Islam to filter um, uh, the quote unquote new world into their minds to help them to understand this vast difference that they're seeing. Um, and I think part of the reason for that is that Islam was for these European Christians one of the great others, one of the great markers of difference um, in the old world. Um, And so as they're grasping for some way of understanding this new place, they fall back on what they know as difference. Um, And and for them, um, one of of the, the, the markers of difference is Islam. It's not the only one. Uh, but it's 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 one of the most crucial, as I as I argue in the book. Um, another way in which you know Islam is relevant to this early European colonial history of of the Caribbean um, is that very very quickly um, Europeans understand that they need hands to work on plantations in the Caribbean, right? So this is in the first few decades in the, in yeah. the early 16th century. Um, and I, I go through the details of the back and forth between uh, the colonists and um, the crown in, in Spain over how to meet that shortage. Um, it becomes apparent pretty quickly that, you know, slaves from West Africa are going to be a part of this plantation of economy in the Caribbean. Um, and there's a lot of back and forth about attempts to prevent the, um, the, the seizure of Muslim West Africans to take them to the new world. There, there's this notion, and it's very explicit in the correspondence between coloni- um, colonists in the Caribbean and, the, and, and um, the authorities in Spain, that they want to prevent the 
importation of Islam to the Caribbean. They see it as tabula rasa, as a non-Muslim space that they want to prevent from being tainted by this scourge of Islam. So there's a lot of, of back and forth, and this is the time of the Inquisition, um, we, we have to remember, in which trying to... Um, to I bet you did not out. expect that. What's that? I bet you did not expect the Inquisition. Well, the way the Inquisition is relevant here, that the only reason I'm bringing it up in this particular context is that much of the Inquisition is about trying to find what is the true um, interior religiosity of people, yeah. right? Even if externally they pretend to be Christians, are they, you know, in their heart of hearts, Jews or Muslims, right? A similar sort of thing happens with West Africans of trying to figure out, are they really Muslims? Are they just acculturated, acculturated as Muslims, et cetera? Um, and, 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 and there is um, an effort to prevent um, bringing any kind of Muslim West Africans to, uh, to the Caribbean. This, and again, I go into great detail in this in the book, this essentially fails and, and it, it becomes very apparent very quickly to the colonists in a place like Hispaniola that many of, of the, the people they have forcibly brought to the new world from West Africa are indeed Muslims. So uh, Mandingo, um, um, for example, from, from West Africa. Um, yeah. And they, they, they use euphemisms like the bad customs of Islam. They express um, a fear that, um, that these Muslim slaves are, in their words, infecting um, other non-Muslim slaves, including some indigenous um, Americans, with, uh, again, this disease of Islam in, the, in their view. So um, the fear of Islam is present at the very beginning. It, it is, in some ways, the motivation for the voyages. And it's there um, in, in, in the first few decades uh, when um, the colonists are, are, are discussing slavery. It's there in the kinds of technology that... that um, is used in the Caribbean. So, so something like uh, the press for crushing, crushing sugarcane um, has um, a, a history that comes from uh, further east across Central Asia and then the Mediterranean. So there are multiple ways in which um, Islam impacts uh, um, 1492 plus or minus um, a few decades and then beyond that, of course, as well. And part of the effort of the book is to really reinsert that history into narratives about 1492. We don't tend to think about the fact that 1492 has anything to do with Islam. And so part of my book is, is to get us to think about that. And let's go back to the Ottomans again. And I want to start with how you would become a sultan, because as you know, there would be, if, if you looked into Ottoman history, most Sultans will have to kill their own brothers to become a sultan, but wasn't there anyone that thought, "Hey, maybe you're right. You maybe we could maybe we could get along." There wasn't anything like that. Um, well, you know, the so the the Ottoman Empire is around for for six hundred years, so we can't speak, you know, in 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 absolute terms uh, that fratricide occurred in, in all periods. It doesn't occur, especially later. It, it, it doesn't occur. But, but there are multiple instances in which it does occur. And it's not only the Ottomans in which this happened. You know, imperial families around the world, it's quite common for there to be quite bloody um, struggles within the family um, itself. So, um, you know, the Ottomans are not so different in, in, in that regard. And now you open, when, after you've talked about the Portuguese expansion into the Americas, you open 
when by his father Salim's father Bayezid versus Sam. Can you kind of talk about their relationship and what it was like? Yeah. So, um, so uh, Bayezid and Jem is 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 how the name is pronounced. Mm. Um, are uh, the the sons of Mehmed the Conqueror, uh, who is the Sultan who conquered Constantinople in 1453. And as often happened in succession um, crises after Mehmed died, there's a battle for who is going to take over from their father. Um, and in this case, um, this is, you know, a very interesting example of, of a succession crisis. Um, Jem... Um, is uh, quickly quickly is is put in the weaker position in the succession crisis. Um, his his brother is is able to make a run on on Istanbul on Constantinople um, before Jem is. I mean, th- this is this is usually how it goes. The first person to get to the palace wins. Uh, you know, it, it's that basic. Um, you talked about the Janissaries as well being a, played a massive part in deciding who would become the next sultan, right? So it's uh, important to have the Janissaries on your side as well. Absolutely, absolutely. Having, having the military elite of the empire um, is, is obviously crucial. Um, Jem, in, in his efforts to overcome um, his, his uh, uh, weak position, tries to make alliances with various powers. So this means that he goes uh, to Cairo, to try to make an alliance with the Mamluk Empire, which is a, a, another very important uh, Muslim empire in the period, which I'm sure we'll talk about more mm. in a little bit. Um, he goes to France. Uh, he goes to the Pope. Um, he, he kind of travels around the Mediterranean trying um, to, um, to um, um, better his hand in the succession crisis. And he eventually dies um, in, um, in Italy and um, it's only then that that Bayezid feels comfortable on the throne, that his brother is not going to come back and take over the, the throne from him. Doesn't, this, he get, doesn't he get captured for a long time and have to spend months in prison? Not really prison, not to mention in the book, but uh, more like comfortable prison. Comfortable yeah, that, that, that's right. He becomes a kind of bargaining chip uh, for um, various um, European... Um, uh, royal families in in places like Rhodes and then in France again, um, in, in which Mehmet pays these families to keep Jem captive because he does he wants nothing to do with Jem. He wants Jem uh, to go away, so he actually pays. Um, um, I'm sorry, Bayezid, his brother, pays uh, these European powers to keep him um, in captivity. You're right; it's a very comfortable form of captivity because this is the person who's a part of a royal family. After after all. But but ne- nevertheless, um, if you want to so, get captured, that's the way to get captured. Be a prisoner. That's right. That's right. Um, uh, and this is con- a convenient way for Bayezid to sort of do away with Jem um, mm-hmm. until until he he ultimately dies. And as we, how much time the space is because it's quite some time he's been worrying about Jem and if he's going to come back to take the throne, right? It's. I think you said 14 years that he has to worry about Jem. That, that's right. So Jem dies in uh, 1495 uh, in Naples. And um, Bayezid takes over the throne in 1481 when his father Mehmed dies. So yes, it's from 1481 to 1495, uh, those 14 years that um, he has to worry about his, his brother. 
why didn't he send out assassins to kill to kill his brother? Would that, would that be possible at all? That that he he want blood in his hand? Yeah, I mean, there are attempts that there are attempts to do that, especially when he's in Anatolia. Uh, that there's a point um, in which Jem is in Anatolia and his brother. And we should say, I, I've been saying brother, but it's really his half brother. They have the same father but different mothers. Um, he he um, he does attempt to kill him. They take armies against each other. Um, it's much harder when um, you know someone is in a foreign land um, to to try to um, uh, assassinate him. Does Jen hope for to get the throne eventually from Bayezid, or does it give does it give up that this is not going to happen? I, I realize that now. Yeah, I mean, the longer the longer that he's you know traveling around the Mediterranean in these forms of cap- captivity, he, you know, the, the the more he realizes that this is not going to happen. Mm. Um, but you know he 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 tries as best he can um, um, to 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 make this happen. But I, I think it's it's pretty clear. You know, after a few years of these attempts, um, and and and, and Mehmed's ability to sorry not Mehmed Bezit's ability to solidify his place on the throne, um, that Jem uh, is probably not going to be able to um, to unseat him. No, at this time Salim is already born. He's around 15 i believe he's old enough to become a governor and as as you mentioned normal for the sultan children is to become governors to get experience to govern in case so you become so to become so you're ready to become sultan but i want to so i want to begin with salim with his relationship with and i'm sorry if i say the name from here, Dulabar Hatuns, his yes. mother. So how, how is the relationship between a future sultan and his mother? Because it seemed to be quite important in the Ottoman Empire. Yeah, it is a crucial, crucial relationship for any prince. So as I mentioned, um, just, just quickly in passing there, um, usually in the royal families, again, this isn't always the case, but usually there is, um, you know, the sultan, um, and the sultan has both wives, legal wives, and concubines. These are female slaves um, that are usually captured through, through war or um, are, are acquired through the slave market or something like that. Um, now, you, you mentioned in the book as well that it was favored, actually, that the white European captive would be the mother of the future sultan, right? Right. So the concubines are often Europeans. Uh, of various kinds, uh, sometimes from the Caucasus, sometimes from Russia, sometimes from um, from the Balkans. And for reasons that aren't exactly clear to historians, you are right that it seems as though the sultans prefer to produce their heirs, the future sultans, from their concubines rather than from their wives. Um, so the way it usually went, it, and this is this is probably part of the reason why what I'm about to explain is that once a concubine bore a son to a sultan, sexual relations between them ceased. So the, the kind of formula that, uh, that we think about is one woman, one son. And once a slave woman, a concubine, has a son, their fates become bound together. Um, obviously, um, you know, the, the legal status of, of being a slave is not an attractive one for, yeah. for anybody. Um, but the, the fortunes of um, a slave woman would rise as, as the fortunes of her son rose. So that if a prince became 
sultan, then his mother would have a favored position within the imperial family. So concubines have a vested interest in their sons succeeding. And so you often see that, um, you know, there'll be the sultan and there'll be multiple sons because you can produce many sons uh, from, from if you have many concubines. Um, and, and so there'll be these kind of teams of mothers and sons vying for position within the imperial harem and then across the empire. And then off, even in succession battles, you'll have the mothers um, kind of helping their sons um, to, to, to win the throne. So in the case of Selim um, and his mother, Gulbahar, uh, who is a, a concubine, a slave woman, um, uh, his, his father, Bayezid, has 10 sons. Um, the eldest son dies um, and is not really relevant for the succession um, crisis. And um, Selim is, is the fourth son overall, but, but then the third son after the eldest dies. Um, and, and those three sons are Ahmed, Korkud, and Salim in that order. So, so Salim is the third in line after his two older brothers. Um, when he is 17, um, he and his mother are, um, are assigned to the governorship of the city of Trabzon, which is on the southeast corner of the Black Sea. Um, so if one were to look at a map, uh, this is about as far away from Constantinople as you can get and still be in the Ottoman Empire. It's the furthest east in the Ottoman Empire at that point. Um, and that assignment of Selim to be governor, and we'll get back to what that means in a second, um, of this city already shows us that his father did not favor him to take over the throne. Because as I said before, proximity to Constantinople and the assignment of, of governorships in all capacities was an indication of how favored one was and how likely one was to take over the throne. So his two older brothers, especially his eldest surviving brother, Ahmed, um, is given a very plum governorship very close to the capital city. So Salim is assigned to this very far away city, one that has only recently been incorporated into the Ottoman Empire, the vast majority of the population is Greek Orthodox. Um, and, you know, this is a place that doesn't have a long history of Ottoman rule at all. It's, it's very newly acquired um, and incorporated into the empire. So it's, it, for all kinds of reasons, it's not a very favorable posting. He's 17 when he goes there. So that was in some ways actually old for uh, these sons to be assigned to be governors, because as you said, these assignments to princes of these positions was a way for them to prove themselves um, in the Ottoman Empire, a way for them to build up relationships that would ultimately um, be part of the competition to win the throne after their father died. The father what, died. Was so the city a difficult city to govern, or was it? That, was yeah, that why well, it was sent it, there to because of difficult to govern and because it was fairly new to the Ottoman Empire? It, it was in the sense that, yes, it was newly incorporated into the empire. It didn't have any institutions, the, you know, the normal institutions of Ottoman society, like soup kitchens, uh, libraries, mosques, uh, a court, these kinds of things. Um, and, and, and we'll get to that in, in a second. But just to finish the thought on, on, on the assignment of governors, sometimes these boys are assigned at seven years of age or eight years of age. Again, they go with their mothers and a small retinue. So it's very clear 
And you see this in the correspondence and in, in the records of, of these governorships, that it's really their mothers who play a very key role in governing these places, in the day-to-day affairs, in assigning uh, people positions of power in the city, of dealing with disputes, because they, they, these, these, these governors, the official governors, the sons, are too young to take on these responsibilities. And it's through learning from their mothers that they come to understand how to govern. So again, the mothers are crucial to this story. In a place like Trabzon, um, um, Salim's mother, Gulbahar, is um, at the height of her power, really, um, while they are there in the city. Um, she endows a, uh, a pious foundation in the city that includes a mosque, a soup kitchen, a library, um, that uh, becomes a central institution for um, turning Trabzon or beginning the process of turning Trabzon from a Greek Orthodox Byzantine city into an Ottoman city. Um, these institutions remake the, the, the landscape of the city. Um, they provide social services that are associated with the Ottoman Empire. Uh, and this is her way of stamping her imprint on the city. And to this day, that pious foundation still exists. The mosque is still there, the soup kitchen, the library. And it's known as the Ladies Foundation after, after Gul Bahar. So in some ways, she does more to shape the city than Salim did. Now, I want to go back a little bit and talk about the harem again. Because what happened if she brought a daughter to the sultan? What would happen to yeah. her daughter? She would, I assume she would not attain governorship. That's right. That's right. I mean, you know, it's a patriarchal society. Um, so w- women do not have um, as many rights as men do. The daughters would, would often have very comfortable lives in, in the institution of the harem. Sometimes um, there would be a politics of, of um, marriage between sovereigns, sometimes outside of the Ottoman Empire to create alliances. So those kinds of things happen. But, but the, the daughters of concubines... Um, do not attain high positions of power in the empire. Hmm. And uh, let's continue on the Galabar's governorship, if to call it that, for the lack of a better word. How does she govern? She builds soup kitchens, as you mentioned, mosques. She's, and she's very highly valued. Does she, but does she let Salim govern as well, or does she kind of like, I'm the power behind the throne and Salim is her puppet in a way? <laughs> Yeah, so I mean this changes over time. So so Salim is 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 in Trabzon longer than he's anywhere else in his life. He's 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 made governor there at the age of 17 in 1487, um, and as governor until he takes the, the throne in 1512. So it's 25 years of his 50-year life he's in Trabzon. So over the course of that period, um, there's a gradual transition towards him being the the, the actual power player in the city. Um, um, you know, when he's very young, it's, it's mostly his mother. Um, you know, of course he kind of serves as a figurehead, but in the day-to-day affairs, she's really the one who's running things. Um, but as he gets older and learns more and more about how to run a place and how the empire works and how to deal with, um, you know, bickering bureaucrats and, uh, Uh, market regulations and taxation and these kinds of things. He takes he takes over more and more of the administration um, um, of of the city. And uh, is this where he gets his? Uh, I don't know his uh, wife's wife's. Uh, this is where he finds his wife. To put it that way, because uh, Solomon is also born 
during this time. Is that right? That's right. So Suleiman, who will become Suleiman the Magnificent, you know, the, probably the most famous uh, sultan in Ottoman history, is is Selim's son, born to a concubine, um, in uh, Trabzon in 1494. Um, so, so yes, that's an important a- aspect of of his time in the city. Um, it's really, you know, that period is is obviously crucial. It, it's where he learns. Um, to cut his teeth as an administrator. It's where he builds military alliances. We're talking about Salim now, where he builds military alliances that would ha- that will help him later on in the succession battle. Um, he leads raids to the east against Georgia um, um, along the, the Black Sea, a very bloody raid um, in the early part of the 16th century. Um, th- this is a frontier zone, as I said. It's, it's, again, as far away from Constantinople as you can get. Um, and this is a, a period during his, his um, time in Trabzon when um, the, the area to the east and the Caucasus and what, you know, what is today northern Iran is a place of, 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 of warfare um, and where people are vying for political power. And some of those battles spill over into the Ottoman Empire and into Trabzon. So he's, he's constantly fending off um, these forces to the east. And I think it helps to shape um, his, his, his rule as Sultan later um, because he's, he's really a military, militarily forward Sultan. And I think it, it, it's from Trabzon that he, he builds that kind of ethos. When does he realize that, I, that if I want to be, I'm not going to become Sultan, he's not going to choose, my father is not going to choose me. I have to do something to, if I want to become Sultan. And when does he start, as you said, to form alliances with several empires, cities, states? When does he realize that he has to do something about this? Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's a, you know, there's not a single crystal moment in which he, he realizes this. I think he, he, you know, he knows enough about the history of the Ottoman Empire and about his, his family's politics, right? Uh, to know that he's third in line as, as the third son, the third surviving son, um, you know, his posting very far away. All of these are very clear messages. The way that his father favors Ahmed, the eldest surviving son. All of these are messages that, that Salim is, is not, um, is not high up in, um, in the, 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 the potential um, to succeed their, his father. So I think Sorry, in, in Trabzon is where he begins to um, think of alternative. Excuse me. No, sorry, you were dropping out, but but keep going, keep going. Um, it's it's in Trabzon that that he uh, begins to build an alternative base of power um, outside of the normal um, avenues of, of of familial politics within the Ottoman dynasty, building alliances with um, parts of the military that have been um, that have been. Um, um, not favored by the, the elite of the of the military, various tribal groups that have fought against um, the Ottoman Empire, disaffected um, um, soldiers and others. Uh, he builds this kind of motley crew of alliances um, in Trabzon that he uses sometimes as a foil against his his um, his father's empire. So in the Georgian raid that I that I discussed. Um, those soldiers are taken from the non-elite of the military. Um, they are ethnically um, uh, Turks rather than 
the Janissaries, which um, are usually not et- um, ethnic Turks. Um, and, and he speaks about these soldiers as being the kind of common folk of the empire, the real Ottomans, quote unquote, um, that haven't been um, uh, corrupted by money or prestige or power in the way that the Janissaries and his father's group has. So he's already cutting a contrast between himself and his father, you know, in the early years of the 16th century, a decade or so before, um, um, you know, there's any inkling that there's going to be a succession crisis in the empire. Now, as you mentioned in the book, he cuts alliances with, make, make an alliances, sorry, with the Kurds as well, right? Which is kind of still, still to this day in this area, outside, kind of outsiders and looked down upon. So what makes him make an alliance with the Kurds? Yeah, I mean, it's so it, it, it's various ethnic groups within um, Eastern Anatolia. Um, again, these are, you know, it, it, the outsiders of the empire. And I don't want to overstate, you know, how uh, copacetic um, these kinds of alliances were. Um, but, the, but there are points in which he is aligned with um, various Kurdish principalities and other ethnic groups within the empire. Later on, he will actually attack these groups. But, um, you know, they serve his interests um, during his time in Trapsan. And do the Janissaries favor Salim? It seemed to me like you explained that it did favor Salim. Why why was this? Why would they favor him? No, no. The Janissaries Janissaries will later. But in this period in Trapsan, it's really the disaffected elements of the military um, that... Um, that um, favors Salim or that he's able to speak to in a way that is compelling to them. Um, the Janissaries are really the elite. They are the Sultan's um, soldiers. The soldiers that he's speaking to are a different cadre of military force in the empire. So I wanted to talk about his brothers for a little while, Ahmed and uh, Torquet. So what did they do in the, to gain the Ottoman throne? And what how did they form an alliances um, to to be take the throne from his father? And and, I, and, that, and the third question is who who does it Bayezid favor of his of the old history? Right. So Bayezid favors Ahmed, the eldest surviving son, and he gives him um, a governorship very close to Constantinople. Um, he when he's very even when he's young, he is bringing him into important meetings. Um, he he gives him all of the favors that uh, a budding sultan would need. Um, the way that Korkut is described is he's kind of described as being more cerebral. He likes reading. He likes philosophy. He likes poetry. You know, his head is in the clouds. This is how the sources describe him. Mm. Um, and and Salim is, is in some ways an afterthought. Um, so it's really Ahmed's throne to get. Um, and, you know, if, if in 1510 or 1511, uh, you know, most people would have assumed that Ahmed would be the one to succeed his father. Doesn't it, does he, because he seemed to describe that story a little bit crazy and just randomly deciding that he will, I'm going to create my own empire. No, that's, I'm going to be Sultan of. Yeah, he, well, I, he does he gets angry later um, when it's clear that he's not going to be able to get the throne. Um, but I wouldn't describe him as crazy. I would describe him more as 
um, simply assuming that the throne would come to him, right? That he didn't have to yeah. struggle to get the throne. He just, um, he, he was complacent, right? Um, thinking that it would come to him very easily. He didn't have to do anything about it. Don't worry about it. I'm going to get the throne. Yeah. Um, now, I, I want to ask you a little what if question here. What, how do you think you would have been as a sultan, in your opinion? Um, you know, that's a good question. I mean, the, I, I, the short answer is I have no idea. I mean, I think, let me, let me answer the question maybe this way, is that it's clear that he would not have done what Salim ended up doing when he became sultan. Mm. Um, and, I, and I think that's because Salim had a different trajectory to the throne than most other sultans before him, um, if not all of them, in the sense that he wasn't the most favored. He had this experience in the East. Um, you know, he had one surviving sultan in Suleiman. He has a very different stance towards the empire than, um, than most sultans did. Ahmed, I think, would have continued very much in his father's vein, um, consolidating borders, fighting off enemies. He would not have been as expansionist as Salim ended up being. I don't think he would have been as violent as Salim. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, it's the counterfactual. We'll never know, of course, but but you know, to, to speculate, I, I, I would say that he would he would basically continue in the vein of of Bayezid. Mm. And how does how does a fight against uh, against Ahmed and Salim go? So obviously we know, but I, yeah. could you talk about a, a Salim versus Ahmed, and how does Ahmed try to start his new empire? Yeah. Okay. So. You know, I won't go blow by blow in terms of how, um, you know, Salim gains the throne, but suffice it to say that, you know, it's very clear Bayezid is, um, you know, his days are, 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 are waning. Um, there are, uh, um, you know, signs that he's getting ready to give over the throne to Ahmed. Salim gets wind of this. Um he calls upon some of the alliances he made with elements of the military. Um, and he has to figure out how to get from Trabzon to Constantinople. Again, very, very far away. He uses the pretense of um, a governorship for his son, Suleiman, as a way of getting closer to Constantinople, physically closer. So he asks his father to assign Suleiman to a governorship in the Balkans, very close to Constantinople, a very choice governorship. Um, Bezit refuses that. Um, there's a negotiation about this governorship. Eventually it's decided that he, he will be made governor in Crimea, in the Northern Black Sea. So not very close to Constantinople, but as, as good as they can get. So Salim accompanies Suleiman to his governorship to kind of drop him off um, in Crimea. And in Crimea, he... Um, he organizes uh, this march um, down the western coast of uh, the Black Sea towards Constantinople. Um, along the way, uh, he sends threatening letters to his father saying, you know, I'm coming to get you kind of thing. Um, Ahmed, of course, gets wind of this and, and tries to mobilize his forces to get to Constantinople before Salim does. Salim reaches the city first. Um, and, you know, in a remarkable turn of events, sort of storms the castle, enters forcibly into, um, into the top cup of palace, the, the seat of the Ottoman Sultan. 
um, and forces his father to give up the throne um, and threatens him. You know, this is this is highly unusual in the imperial politics of the Ottoman Empire. Um, never happened in this way before. Um, as part of this crisis, um, Ahmed has forces in the city. Ahmed is not in the city already, but he has kind of his men in the city. And Salim has his men. There's kind of gang warfare in the streets of, of Constantinople. Eventually, Bayezid sees the writing on the wall um, and steps down from the throne, giving it over to Salim. Salim is now faced with um, an unprecedented situation in which he is now the sitting sultan and there is a former sultan who's still alive and has capacity to rule, but, it, but has been deposed. Um, usually sultans only were removed if they died or became physically or mentally incapacitated. That was not the case here. So Salim has to figure out what am I going to do with my father? Um, it's eventually decided that he will be sent to a kind of forced retirement in a town um, in what is today Greece. Um, as he's sent off, um, he dies on the road to this town. So there's Now, a lot. Yeah, of, and I hear this is where I want to ask you because yeah. you mentioned that he may have killed him himself. That he poisoned yeah. him. Do you do you believe? That is the truth that you believe that he may have had a heart attack, as you mentioned in the book. Well, we will never know. I mean, we will never know. Um, So some historians say, yes, Salim either had him poisoned or had one of his men kill him on the road. Some say, you know, Bayezid died of heartbreak on the road. You know, there are are several theories. Uh, I think, you know, ultimately we will never know. Um, um, But... Whatever the case, it's quite convenient for Salim, right? There's circumstantial mm-hmm. evidence that would suggest that he had an interest in being gone with Bayezid for the reasons that I cited already. Um, and so Bayezid is quickly, you, you know, out of out of the picture. Um, you suggested uh, uh, that Ahmed had raised his own army and his own kind of mini empire. That is true. So after Salim takes the throne, Ahmed is very angry, and this is this is where he 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 might get a little crazed. Um, and he builds up his own forces in Anatolia, in Western Anatolia, and uh, proclaims himself to be Sultan of Western Anatolia, um, and that he is going to come to Constantinople and defeat his brother. Um, so his brother, you know, obviously can't have that stand. There's only one Sultan. Um, so for the first year of his reign, of Salim's reign, he is attempting to eliminate both Ahmed and Kurkut. No, you meant this is the part and again in the book where you I forget the name of the empire. It's a Shia, it's a Shia empire that he forms an alliance with. Some people may know what I'm referring to, but did you talk about the alliance with the Shia empire? Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. So, um, so okay. So, if I, I mentioned before that you know when when Salim was governor of Trabzon, that there were all kinds of of um, of different groups fighting in eastern. Um, you, you know, to the east of Trabzon in the Caucasus, yeah. northern Iran. One of the groups that comes out of that will eventually form the Safavid Empire in 1501 um, in northern Iran and the Caucasus. Um, and they are enemies of the Ottomans. Um, Ahmed contemplates a, an alliance with the Safavids to help him to get the throne from Salim. Right? And he ultimately sends his son there as well. That's right. And, and, and a couple of his sons actually go to the Safavid court. Um, so, you know, for Salim, this is evidence 
further evidence of Ahmed's bankruptcy, right? That he's aligning with this sworn enemy of the Ottomans and attempting um, to use this empire against uh, the, the Ottoman Empire. Um, do you think he was a strategic reason he did this, or do you think you know, he was not silly? He was right that he was bankrupt and desperate measures. There's certainly evidence that, that Ahmed um, attempts an alliance with the Safavids and that some of his uh, sons and other men go to the Safavid court. No, that's clear. Um, I think it's, you know, it's, it's part of Ahmed's strategy of he needs support. He needs a fighting force. He needs allies. Um, and so he's searching for them where he can. And hmm. um, how does this alliance work out? Not very well. It doesn't help Ahmed. He's eventually caught and killed. Um, yeah, both Korkud and, and Ahmed are, are killed uh, by, by Salim in uh, 1513. So after he gains the throne in 1512, the next year. And once they're, they're eliminated, um, Salim, you know, in the same way that once Jem was eliminated, Bayezid felt confident on the throne. Once Salim's bro- half-brothers are eliminated, he is fully in control of the empire at that point. Now, Tosh... Talk about how he murdered Korkut because it's quite brutal the way the way that he murders his other brother. Yeah, um, I mean the actual details of it I'm not recalling at the moment. I mean both of them are are um, are uh, uh, strangled. I believe they're both strangled. Um, mm-hmm. I, I I would have to go back to the the book to see exactly. You, ma- you mentioned that he is uh, yeah. strangled in the cave that he just walked out and the kind of is this this uh, sorry I forget the word uh, he is disgusted by him yep. in a way. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean Salim is a part of going after his half brothers. The uh, the actual moment of death was probably carried out by one of his men, mm-hmm. um, but. Um, you know, Salim is a brutal guy and, you know, he, he, um, he wants his brothers gone. Mm. So he takes, he takes, he's found his sultan and he got rid of his brothers at last. And how old is he at this point and what does he do next? Yeah. So, um, so this is 1513. Once his brothers are eliminated, he is 43 years old at this point. Um, Salim Salim's reign is, is only eight years, 1512 to 1520. He spends remarkably most of it fighting um, in the east of the empire. This is another thing that makes him unique in Ottoman history. Mo- all of his battles are um, against eastern enemies. So after the elimination of his brothers, he, in the very next year, 1514, leads a campaign against the Safavid Empire that we were just discussing. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, a, um, this is known as the Battle of Chaldiran after the city in which this battle took place. Um, he marches an enormous uh, army all the way across Anatolia. So if you think of the modern um, nation state of Turkey, all the way from Istanbul to, uh, uh, you know, through the modern borders, um, to a city in northern Iran, the city of Chaldiran. Um, and, and the Ottoman army and the Safavid army meet there. Um, it's a very uh, quick, bloody battle, an enormous victory that the Ottomans um, strike, a decisive um, um, victory for Salim early in his reign against um, you know, one of his major rivals in the Middle East. And there's a major setback for the Safavids. Um, this campaign is also very, very important because 
Salim leads one of the largest domestic massacres in Ottoman history before the end of the 19th century against um, Shiite communities in Anatolia. Um, They are described as being allies of the Shiite Safavids, right, as internal enemies, as others that need to be eliminated. Um, So this is, you know, further evidence of just how violent um, Salim was that he massacred up up to 40,000, if not more, of his own of his own subjects. Now, I think it's important to mention the most Islamic Islamic law that Islam Islamists were not allowed to kill other Islamics, as you mentioned in the book again. But against other non-Islamic was okay. So, what makes this okay that Salim can kill go against the Shiites? Yeah, well, I mean, there are a couple of ways to answer that. One is, you know, there's there's what's written on paper and there's what is actually done, right? I mean, yeah. you know, the Ten Commandments say, thou shall not lie, but, you know, people lie all the time. So, um, uh, it, you know, Muslims battle Muslims all the time. That's that's nothing surprising there. Um, Salim, though, does have um, his uh, religious authorities issue fatwas, um, uh, religious edicts, uh, describing Shiites as apostates, as um, treasonous, as even non-Muslim, and thereby sanctioning violence against them. So he does feel the need to have a religious uh, uh, pretext to go after um, Shiites. Hmm. And something I want to talk about next is, because, you know, for those who may not know or haven't read the book yet, which he should, by the way, it's brilliant, so a sultan and Ottoman in the Ottoman Empire did not be crowned caliph like the Umayyads. They were caliphs, right? So, so why did not an Ottoman be crowned caliph? And I want to get into the Mamluk and Ottoman relations next. Yeah, well, again, there is the the sort of legal um, um, details of uh, what it means to be caliph and the institution of the caliphate. Um, and then there are what sovereigns claimed themselves to be. Now, to be caliph, the, the technical definition of, of being caliph is, is, is he who holds Mecca and Medina, the holiest cities in Islam. Um, in this period, it was the Mamluk Empire, the mm-hmm. empire I mentioned when we were discussing gems, centered in yeah. Cairo, um, and that rules parts of North Africa, Egypt, parts of Syria, and then the Hejaz, the region on the um, uh, eastern coast of the Red Sea in what is today Saudi Arabia that houses Mecca and Medina. So, um, you know, being, being caliph is, among other things, a, a rhetorical um, um, sanction for uh, a Muslim, a Muslim uh, ruler. Um, and this will enter into Salim's politics later on. Um, what would the power be if you became caliph as well as sultan? Would, was this the highest honor you can get in the Islamic world? Yeah. I mean, in terms of, of titles a Muslim leader can have, that is certainly uh, amongst, amongst the highest, right? It makes you custodian of, of the holy places, right? Um, yeah. the, you know, Mecca and Medina are places where Muslims around the world come to every year. This is the place where uh, people face when they pray five times a day. So the sponsors of that, of that holiness, possess a lot of power. Mm. And what, now Salim does seem to, because there has seemed to have quite a decent relationship, I would say, according to yourself, in 
until Salim, but why does he? What reason does he have to go against go to war against the Mamluk Empire? Yeah, um, there are there are a couple of reasons. I mean, one is I, I think his sheer ambition to uh, to triumph over uh, over others. Um, there is a a sort of contingent reason that along their long border between the Ottomans and the Mamluks in, um, you know, it, kind of what is today northern Syria, um, there are skirmishes across the border back and forth all the time, raids going in, in either direction. There are rumors that the Safavids and the Mamluks are thinking about a, an alliance against the Ottomans. Um, Salim sees his victory at Chalderon as boding very well for his military future. Um, he wants to secure the eastern half of his empire, right, against the Safavids, but then also um, against uh, the Mamluks. Um, it provide, it would, if the Ottomans were to conquer the Mamluks, it would provide them not only massive territory, but also access to trade routes to the east um, to secure the, uh, the eastern portion of the Mediterranean, There are all kinds of, of, of reasons um, for Salim to invade uh, the Mamluk Empire. I think ultimately, though, it, it, it's, it's what I said initially, that, that he has this ambition to be um, a, a kind of leader who uses military force um, against his enemies. And you see that throughout his life. Mm. Um, how he does, and like you said, he's a specialist. How does he win over the Mamluk and conquer at last Mecca and Medina? Right. So, uh, again, I go blow by blow in the book. I, I won't repeat it here. But in, in 1516, um, he begins marching uh, towards Cairo, the, the, um, the, Mamluk, the Mamluk capital. Uh, there are battles all along the way through Syria and Lebanon and Palestine and Sinai, eventually um, reaching Cairo. Um, he, he, Salim enters Cairo in 1517, um, seizes the Mamluk uh, capital, um, and, you know, legally and officially the Mamluk empire um, is no longer, and that territory becomes Ottoman territory. Of course, none of this happens overnight, Um, this is a gradual process over decades, but, but th- this is the initial seizure of the Mamluk, Mamluk Empire um, and its official incorporation into the Ottoman Empire in 1517. So all of that territory, North Africa, Egypt, Syria, parts of Iraq, Mecca and Medina, becomes officially a part of the Ottoman Empire. This almost triples the territory of the Ottoman Empire. It completely changes the demographics of the empire. Um, making it a majority Muslim empire. It puts the Ottomans for the first time into the Red Sea and therefore into the Indian Ocean, into uh, Northern Africa. Um, It gives the Ottoman Empire the shape uh, that it will have roughly um, until World War I. This is the largest single territorial expansion in 600 years of Ottoman history. And as you said, they are the closest to reconquer the Roman Empire since the Roman Empire. Right, right. And something that you mentioned in the book as well is that at this point, coffee become kind of a relevant trade in for the Ottomans. How how does that come about? That how what does coffee have to do with the Ottomans? Yeah. So um, 
as part of his seizure in, in 15, uh, 16 and 1517 of the, of the Mamluk Empire, um, the Ottomans uh, take Yemen um, on the southwestern uh, corner of the Arabian Peninsula. Again, the full incorporation of Yemen will take several decades, but this is the moment when it begins. Um, and in Yemen, the Ottomans uh, come across coffee. Now, coffee had come from, coffee beans had come uh, most likely from Ethiopia um, across, across the Red Sea several centuries, maybe decades previously. Um, it was known um, um, in Yemen from Ethiopia. Um, and it, it's there that the Ottomans come across coffee for the first time. Um, the unity of the Ottoman Empire from Yemen, you know, very far south, up through Syria, across North Africa, into the Middle East, you know, through Anatolia, into the Balkans, and into, you know, south, southeastern Europe, um, that political, social, cultural, institutional unity eventually allows coffee to spread up from Yemen throughout all of that territory. And eventually, a few decades after 1517, um, you, you come to see that uh, there are um, new institutions established devoted solely to the consumption of coffee. So coffee houses or cafes um, are essentially an Ottoman um, innovation uh, that uh, um, could only happen because of uh, Salim's conquest um, in 1516, 1517 and the entrance of coffee um, into the Ottoman world. Hmm. Did, they, did we take it for granted that the Ottomans actually has so much to say about this little drink that we all, everyone drink today? Yeah, I mean, this gets back to, you know, what we spoke about at the very, very beginning of, of trying to think about um, how the Ottoman Empire is relevant to world history. Um, and this is, you know, uh, 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 um, we might say a small, a small indication of that, but obviously a very huge indication of that. Coffee is drunk all over the world. You know, we put it in our bodies. Um, there's massive uh, fortunes that are built on the backs of coffee, institutions, uh, trade networks, uh, you know, medicinal mm. understandings of, of the world. All of that, um, all, everything that's attached to coffee in some ways has an, uh, an Ottoman history. And we owe lots of the kind of attributes of coffee um, to, uh, to the Ottomans. So, you know, inciting the coffee example, this is one of the ways in which uh, I, I think this period of Ottoman history is important for us to understand our world. Mm. Um, I, as, as mentioned as well, Salim is hardly in Constantinople at all during his sultanship and, and in his lifetime even. So he doesn't really feel comfortable there. And yeah. soon, soon after he conquers Medina and Mecca, there is a play coming. So let's talk a little bit about his final days as well. Yeah, yeah. So, so you're right that, um, you know, in the eight years that he's sultan, he spends most of it outside of the royal palace. Um at war against the Safavids and then the Mamluks. He comes back to um, Istanbul in um, 1518 um, uh, after his war with the Mamluks, after Cairo has been secured. And um, uh, very, very soon after he arrives, there's a plague outbreak in, um, in Istanbul. Plague was a very common occurrence in the world, not just in the Ottoman Empire, but in, in lots of places. Um, and, you know, as 
um, you know, with, with echoes to our present day, one of the ways that um, you deal with plague, if you have the means, is to run away from it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so he leaves Istanbul shortly after arriving um, to Adirne, which is uh, the old Ottoman capital um, in, in the Balkans further west from, uh, from Istanbul. And um, the Ottomans have many institutions there. Uh, there are hunting lodges and palaces, various things. So th- this was a common place for sultans to go for leisure and uh, just to get out of the city. So he goes there, um, uh, if you like, his uh, you know, kind of vacation spot um, in late 1518 to escape the plague. Um, and he spends his uh, remaining days in um, Edirne, um, you know, doing the things that sultans do. Um, he falls ill. Um, in, it's interesting uh, that he did get a plague that he may have, uh, that he may have gotten a plague while he was in Istanbul, right? So, so he falls ill um, after about a year and a half in Edirne. We don't know exactly how he died. Some people think he contracted plague either from in when he was in Constantinople before he left or after being in Adirne for a period. There, some think that he could have contracted anthrax from his horse, which was a common occurrence. Um, um, however, however, whatever it was, he, he had a disease that, um, that um, would eventually lead to his death. He, when he falls sick in Adirne, um, his physician suggests going back to Istanbul because he can get better medical care there. Um, and it's on the road back to Istanbul where he dies in 1520, September 1520. And um, we, don't, we don't have to talk, Solomon, of course, will be his own episode eventually, but what makes, what do you think makes Solomon a favorite study among historians? And you, you mentioned this as well, that not this, Salim is mostly overlooked, but he's really what shaped, it's a, put it this way, the modern Ottoman Empire. Yeah, I mean, uh, so I think, Suleiman um, is set up very well by his father, Salim. Salim um, has uh, just the one son, Suleiman, surviving into adulthood. So at the, you know, that in and of itself saves Suleiman the succession crisis that uh, sultans had to deal with, that took a lot of energy, um, that sapped years from their sultanate, all of those kinds of things. Um, so he saved that stress at, at, at the very beginning. Um, he benefits from this huge territorial expansion that Salim had just won for the empire. Suleiman now possesses more territory um, than any previous sultan had, thanks to his father. Um, he has the trade routes. He has uh, this increased population size. He has the prestige of holding the holy cities. Um, he has an expanded army. He has uh, new institutions uh, that um, Salim, uh, Salim's expansion uh, made necessary. Um, so in, in, in some ways, he's benefiting from um, Salim's territorial expansion. Um, part of that expansion um, makes the, part of the importance of the expansion is that it makes the Ottomans much more relevant to European powers. Um, they are much more cognizant of Ottoman power that now stretches from Algeria 
all the way around the Mediterranean to Venice or Albania. Um, and so it's Soliman is engaged in this diplomatic correspondence with European powers in a way that no um, previous Ottoman sultan was because of the sheer um, increase in Ottoman power, uh, thanks, thanks to Selim. Selim didn't have an, enough time on the throne to do any of the things that Suleiman will eventually, eventually do. I don't want to say that everything Suleiman did was thanks to Selim. Of course not. Suleiman is the longest um, reigning um, sultan in Ottoman history. He does many important things um, o- over the course of his reign, from the arts to you know, dynastic politics to war. Um, but he gets a head start um, thanks to uh, thanks to Salim, and I would argue that in, he could not have done the things he did without um, the, the the massive territorial expansion that Salim had won. Does is this the point? Like the Roman Empire eventually realized that we are too large, we can't expand anymore without collapsing completely. Is this kind of the same situation with after Salim that they don't expand anymore? They try Vienna, but they fail, of course. Yeah, no, the, the, the Ottomans do expand after, they continue to expand after this period. I mean, not, not um, you know, the percentage increases that, that Salim was able to win, but in Iraq to the east, um, the Ottomans gain territory. Sometimes they lose it, sometimes they gain it again. Um, and then in, in Eastern Europe, so in, in Hungary, um, and as you say, um, even to the gates of Vienna, temporarily, of course, but there is expansion um, but it's it's at the edges, and it's never you, you, you know the 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 the, uh, the amount that Salim um, had had conquered. And hmm. um, at the end of the book, you uh, and this I thought I thought this was fascinating. I wanted to ask you about this because you draw similarities between the current president of Turkey, Erdogan, and Salim. Why is that? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, he makes it he makes it very, very obvious. Uh, Erdogan. Um, so uh, the, what I point to at the end of the book is 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 the following. Um, oh, it, people who have been to Istanbul um, know that the Bosphorus runs through the city. Um, there previously were only two bridges that span the Bosphorus Straits. The Bosphorus Straits is an enormous waterway. Um, building a bridge over it is, is a massive undertaking. Um, and so there were two bridges previously over, over the Bosphorus. The first one was called um, uh, the Bosphorus Bridge, not surprisingly. Um, the second was named after uh, Mehmed the Conqueror, so Salim's grandfather, the sultan who conquered Constantinople. Also probably not so surprising um, in the sense that this is the Ottoman sultan who brought mm. the city into the empire. During Erdogan's um, reign, a third Bosphorus bridge uh, was, was constructed. Massive, one of the largest bridges in the world. Um, and Erdogan could have named the bridge anything. He could have named it after himself. Um, he could have named it after any figure from Ottoman history or from, you know, I don't know, Muslim history or history generally. He could have given it a, a, a descriptive name. He chooses to name it after Selim. Um, so, you know, this begs, this begs an explanation. Um, I think Salim is relevant for Erdogan uh, for the following reasons. Um, one is the massive territorial expansion that we discussed. Erdogan very much sees himself as a kind of regional figure, right, as a major player in the Middle East, 
Um, Turkey has military and economic interests in, in places in the Gulf, um, in places like Libya, in Yemen, in Syria, obviously, um, in the Caucasus. So that kind of regional power, expansionary um, power, if you like, um, Erdogan sees echoes of that in Selim. Uh, this melding of secular power and religious power that, um, you know, um, Selim wins Mecca and Medina for the Ottomans. Um, Erdogan very much styles himself as, a, as, as, as an Islamist leader of Turkey. Um, and so Selim, again, is useful in, in those kinds of ways. I think Selim's violence towards his enemies, both foreign and domestic, is, is also an example of power that um, Erdogan is happy to try to emulate, um, that he will be forceful in his, in his rule in the country. And we've seen that in all kinds of ways in the jailing of dissidents and journalists and, uh, um, and then outside of Turkey in, in the various wars that um, Turkey is involved in currently. So um, in these ways, Selim is, is, is symbolically useful um, to Erdogan. Uh, for American listeners, um, in the same way that Trump invoked Andrew Jackson um, um, uh, quite regularly, I think Erdogan does a similar thing with Salim. This example from the past of the, of the kind of, in Trump's case, American power, in Erdogan's case, Turkish power, Ottoman power, really, but for him, Turkish power that these historical figures represent. And mm. um, do you think that he secretly wished to bring back the Ottoman Empire? That he wished to that not to call it the Ottoman Empire instead of Turkey? No, way? I mean, no. I mean, you know, actually conquering territory in the middle. No, I think Erdogan understands that that's an impossibility. Um, uh, the, the, there isn't a sense of, you know, wanting to reconstitute the Ottoman Empire. I do think he's interested in projecting Turkish power into the world. Um, and, you know, we could say that has something to do with the Ottoman Empire or not. I mean, many countries want to project their power into the world. Um, you know, he's, he's interesting, Erdogan is, for many reasons, but, but one that's relevant here is, um, unlike many uh, leaders of Republican Turkey, so since 1923, Erdogan has very much embraced the Ottoman Empire in a very specific way. Um, only parts of the Ottoman Empire, the parts that are useful for him, um, it's selective and historically inaccurate in lots of ways. But nevertheless, he's embraced the Ottomans in ways other Republican leaders have, have it, have not, um, uh, because I think he sees it as a well of um, um, authority, historic power, of pride uh, for Turkey that Turkey should very much hold close rather than trying to distance itself from that Ottoman past in the way that leaders had over the course of the 20th century. Is he one of the reasons because there's there's something recent, quite a lot of Ottoman TV shows in Turkey set in the Ottoman Empire, and is he part of the reason that he's trying to embrace to try to embrace the Ottoman past? Sure, sure. That it, we see so so much Ottoman Ottoman series and movies in yeah. Turkey right now. Sure, for sure. I mean, you know, there's the phenomenon of neo-Ottomanism that many people uh, uh, um, identify, and this is certainly a part of it. The kind of soft power that comes from soap operas and TV series. So, you know, we were talking about Suleiman, you know, one of the most famous soap operas around the world is one based on the, the life of Suleiman um, and, um, and the woman that he will eventually marry. 
Uh, it's called The Magnificent Century. Um, and th this is a soap opera that has been dubbed in multiple languages that, you know, from Mexico to Greece to Pakistan is on TV um, and in many ways serves a as a way for Turkey to, again, project its 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 face into into the world. Do you think this is mostly propaganda or don't they? No, it's not propaganda. I mean, I, I think of it as kind of soft power, you know, a kind of mm -hmm. cultural power in the same way that, you know, if people around the world are drinking Coca-Cola and wearing, you know, American blue jeans, that, you know, serves American interests in, in a kind of cultural way, right? That America is important yeah. and produce these things. And yeah. I mean, it's kind of a good thing, I think, in a way that this becomes so popular with Ottoman TV shows that shows that people get started to get interested and look into the actual influence and want to look into the history of the Ottoman Empire, which is really fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I think it goes both ways. I mean, it, it, it you know, it, if what people see on TV is all they know about the Ottoman Empire, yeah. then that's a very skewed picture. <laughs> But if it encourages them to, to read more deeply and to, um, you know, to delve um, into sources and other books, then yes, that's a good thing. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure to have you on this show. And before you go, do you have anything you wish to promote on social media or any links you wish me to put in the description? No, thank you. This has been a, a lot of fun. And uh, I encourage people to seek the book out. Um, it's available in multiple languages. Um, and, uh, you know, um, I'm easily findable online if people have any questions. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure as well. And my name is Alan. You can find us on social media, on Instagram, well, that aged well, YouTube, Spotify, wherever, wherever you can find podcasts. Next week, we are going to lean into with the YouTube channel, Hikma History, and we're going to talk about the modernization of Afghanistan. My name is Alan. This has been Wondatish 12. Please like, share, and subscribe. And we see you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.